early in Genesis, there's a couple of verses often overlooked but hugely significant. They offer a big picture view of the saving work of God across the ages. These few verses introduce the pattern of God's mercy that is often repeated in Scripture. But these verses, they also hint at the great cost that this mercy extracts from the living God. So, at the beginning of Noah's story, in Genesis 6, verse 5, we read this. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Genesis chapter 6, 5 and 6. Now verse 5 clearly describes the bleak condition of humankind, both back then and in us today. And though many disagree and and many think this is a harsh assessment of human nature, really, who can argue against human history and our own experience when it comes to the blackness of a human heart? But also here in these two verses, we have verse 6, and here we catch a glimpse of the toll that this takes on the Father heart of God, the toll our rebellion and our sin takes on him. The Lord was grieved, his heart was filled with pain. Let's pause for a bit here. We often don't think of God in this way, do we? A God who grieves and feels pain at our expense. Now, God's not crippled by this pain, nor bitter in his grief, not at all. He is the living God, creator of all things, three in one, all glorious and majestic, without need, complete and whole in every way. But still... Alongside this, he is a God who feels pain and is acquainted with grief. And wonder of wonders, here in Genesis, instead of destroying all of humankind as they deserved, God shows mercy. He rescues Noah and his family. He saves a few and starts afresh. And so here we have the pattern of God's saving work laid out at the beginning of Genesis that we see repeated and reflected often time and time again through the rest of the Bible. The inclination of our hearts is evil all the time, and though this grieves God, in his mercy he saves those who look to him. In all this, God has a problem, well, more than one problem, really. But So let's consider this. Our hearts are hardened and inclined to evil, so how does God communicate his soft heart and his offer of mercy to us? Well, to answer this question, we're going to fast forward a good few centuries from Noah's story to Jeremiah's day. Indeed, we'll see God confronting our calloused hearts in a way that cuts through our denial and minimising and our compromising. And yet, as God does so, he also communicates his grief and his pain. So let's dive into Jeremiah's second prophetic message and see God confronting hearts that are inclined to evil, but also extending mercy. So let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. 
I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister, Judah, she had no fear. She also went out and had committed adultery. Jeremiah 3, 6-8. Now there's a lot to unpack here, isn't there? Uh, the reference to King Josiah indicates we're still early in Jeremiah's ministry. And in Jeremiah's second prophetic message, we see here God becoming much more personal. He describes himself as a husband of two sisters, Israel and Judah. Think Jacob married to Leah and Rachel. Jacob was married to two sisters. However, all is not right in this relationship for the sisters, described as faithless Israel and unfaithful Judah, are committing adultery. In fact, one of the sisters, one of the wives, is so persistent in multiple adulteries that God, her husband, has divorced her and hopes the younger sister, his other wife, will see sense. And laid out here is a a common theme, especially in the prophets, a common theme where God highlights the seriousness of our hearts toward evil and also something of the pain it causes him. God uses the illustration of himself as a faithful and generous husband whose wife is having adulterous affairs. So when God says that we've strayed and we reply but we're only human and surely it doesn't matter that much, it's like us catching our spouse in the act of adultery and they replying, but I'm only human, surely it doesn't matter that much. And you see, when we use this illustration, it cuts through our rationalising and minimising of our sin. And we, when we do... God replies, well, it's as bad as your spouse having an affair. And by doing so, he cuts through our desire to define what's right and wrong and how serious it is. Notice also how God deeply conveys that he is not unmoved when we sin, that it cuts him deep. Now let's not stop here. There's all sorts of questions raised in this passage that I want to explore. Three questions in particular. I mean... Who is the husband's competition? Who are the sisters chasing after? That's the first question. And then exactly who are these sisters, Israel and Judah? And thirdly, what does it mean that one of the sisters is divorced? So first of all, the husband's competition. Who are the sisters having affairs with? Well, Jeremiah 3 verse 9 makes it clear. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood god the faithful and generous husband has competition in the form of idols idols shaped out of stone and carved out of wood instead of sexual unfaithfulness we're talking spiritual unfaithfulness god's people are breaking the first two of the ten commandments you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make for yourself idols And God considers this idol worship as bad as adultery. So, that's who the two sisters are having affairs with. It's all to do with idol worship. Who exactly are the two sisters then? Well, one's named Israel and the other Judah. Some historical background will help. Long before Jeremiah's day, God rescued the 12 tribes of Israel from Egypt. Under Moses, God led his people into the promised land. 
There they settled and formed a loose confederation of tribes. Eventually they demanded a king, and it was under their second king, King David, that the twelve tribes became unified. They became united as one nation. Unfortunately, Israel was not a united nation for very long because after the third king, after King Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two. The ten northern tribes didn't want anything to do with Solomon's son. So they succeeded and they established their own kingdom and they called themselves Israel, the northern kingdom. However, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they remained faithful to Solomon's son and formed the nation of Judah. Now, this was not a amicable split. It wasn't pleasant. So sometimes the two nations uh, were friendly. Sometimes they were at war. They were always suspicious of each other. However, though the nation was divided, God's heart was not divided. Not at all. God loved both Israel and Judah, and he sent prophets to both nations to call them to true worship and to follow his ways. See now how Jeremiah's prophecy of a husband and two wives makes sense. God loves Israel and Judah, just like this husband loved the two sister wives. Faithless Israel is the northern kingdom, and unfaithful Judah is the southern kingdom. God is faithful and a generous husband to them both. So this brings us to our third question in this passage. What's all this about Israel's divorce? Well, again, we need to go back to Israel and Judah and their history. When the ten northern tribes split off, they cut themselves off from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, according to God's law, the only place that you could offer sacrifices was at the temple. So this new northern kingdom had a problem. Where was their centre of worship going to be? And so they made two golden calves, two idols to worship. And the king of this new Israel said, you do not need to go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. Behold, the golden calves who rescued you from Egypt, these shall you worship. And so can you see straight away from the birth of this northern kingdom of Israel, idol worship was set in place. Now God sent Elijah and Elijah and other prophets to the northern kingdom to call them back. And to warn them, if they didn't, God would send a powerful nation to punish them. However, despite God's patience and his heartfelt calls and his stern warnings, the northern tribes of Israel got worse and worse, even to the stage where they would sacrifice their children to idols. Sacrificing their children to idols. So finally, God sent the Assyrian Empire that totally destroyed the and exiled the northern kingdom. To this day, those ten tribes have never returned. They are lost and they are no more. And so Jeremiah, who is now 150 years after Israel was destroyed, is telling the people of Judah, he's saying, God has divorced faithless Israel. And that is referring to sending Assyria in to destroy the northern kingdom. And during that time, the southern kingdom of Judah was spared. You see, the southern tribes had not strayed as far. They'd even had some godly kingdoms. They had the temple, they had the priests, they had the word of God. 
And so their move into idolatry was a lot slower. However, by Jeremiah's day, and remember it's about 150 years after Israel fell, Judah was worshipping idols, worshipping idols alongside their worship of Yahweh. And so we have Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10. In spite of this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. In spite of all that had happened to the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah did not return to God with all her heart, so were happy to worship idols alongside the living God. So in Jeremiah's prophecy here in chapter 3 and 4, we can see this original pattern in Genesis unfolding. The people's hearts are inclined to evil all time. They forsake God for idols, even sacrificing their children. And as a betrayed husband is grieved by an unfaithful wife, so God is grieved by this idol worship and this drawing of his laws. But this is only part of the pattern, isn't it? Because now God extends mercy. Jeremiah 3.14 Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. So we see here in verse 13 and 14, God extends mercy. Return to me. I choose you. I am your husband. Judah, you are still my wife. Even faithless Israel I will call back. Come to me. Forsake your evil ways. Return to me, the lover of your souls. We see here this wonderful offer of hope. Hope that when they return to the living God, he will bless them. He will even give them shepherds who are after God's own heart, who will faithfully lead and teach his people. And then in verse 17, No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Israel will join the house of Judah. Jeremiah 3.17 Notice how in the days to come, the pattern of evil of the heart all the time will be broken and all the people of God will be reunited. So for the next chapter or so, this prophecy of Jeremiah continues with warnings and consequences intermixed with God's offer of mercy. Jeremiah 3.22 Return, faithless people, I will cure you of backsliding. Jeremiah 4.4 Circumcise yourself to the Lord, circumcise your hearts. And I could go on. But let's pause and review. In the second prophecy, God is showing his people that they are following the inclination of their own hearts. He's also showing them through the illustration of unfaithful wives in marriage the pain that it causes the husband, the pain that it causes him. Yet he still extends mercy and promises them a wonderful future. But will his people listen? Will Jeremiah's prophecy here in his whole ministry be successful? Well, unfortunately not. Jeremiah 4.22 sums up the people that Jeremiah is speaking to. Jeremiah 4.22 My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. No, sadly, 
God's people do not listen to God through the prophets, through Jeremiah and others. In fact, Jeremiah lives to see the Babylonian army conquer Judah, the two southern tribes, carry off his people, God's people, into exile, while the temple is left in utter ruin. And so as we finish at looking at this prophetic message of Jeremiah, what are our take-homes? How do we bring this 6th century BC gloom and doom into our 21st century lives? Well, there's a number of ways that we can do this, but it's the image as God as our husband that struck me most. Jeremiah 3.14 I am your husband. I will choose you. So what does this mean to you and I? Well, four things. Firstly, God as our husband communicates how wonderfully intimate our walk with him can be. Many of the qualities of a healthy marriage, warmth, friendship, appreciation, forgiveness, looking to each other's interests, are all reflected in our walk with God. We must banish any stoic, formal, God is at a distance. God is in heaven and we are in the dust. We must banish that view of God. Yes, God is holy and we come to him with a sense of awe, but also with love, acceptance and forgiveness that characterize a loving marriage. So that's the first reason why God as our husband is such a wonderful image. It communicates the intimacy that we can have with him. Secondly, God as our husband communicates an exclusive love, a jealous love. Now what do I mean by this? Well, it is good and right that a husband loves his wife and no other woman. Wouldn't you agree? It's good and right that a wife loves no no other man except her husband. Wouldn't you agree? You see, there's an exclusivity in marriage that's unique. It's between husband and wife, and it's exclusive. This is not the same with the other relationships. For instance, a husband and wife might have four children, and they love each of their four children equally. They don't just love one, but they love them all. A husband and wife will have a number of friends and family that they will love. And they don't just love one family member or just one friend. You see, the love for other folk does not have to be exclusive, but a love between a husband and wife is exclusive, and it's rightfully so. It's a jealous form of love, and I use the word jealous in a healthy way. And this is the same with God and us. We will not worship another God, any God, in the same way that a husband will not love another woman. We will not set idols before us in the same way that a wife will not love another man. And we've talked about modern-day idols before in this series in Jeremiah. A modern-day idol for most of us, if not all of us, it's not a carved image or a little statuette that's in our house that we offer incense and prayers to. No, no, modern-day idols are money, a careers, a special relationship. Whatever the world attracts us with and the devil tempts us with can be an idol. And remember Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories, always looking for something to dethrone Christ with and push him to the side and push him out. But the image of God as our husband reminds us of an exclusive love for him and no other. Thirdly, God as our husband reminds us about how serious it is when we portray this love. 
when we set, say, our career before God and focus our energies on promotion and getting ahead and expanding our bottom line at the exclusion of him, it's as if we are having an extra marital affair. If we put our children on a pedestal, making them more important than God when it comes to time and energy and finances, it's like visiting a prostitute. I mean, it's that bad. And we're shocked because we would never put it in that terms, would we? But that's what God's communicating here. Hmm. Because our hearts are inclined to evil and because we love to minimize sin, God must use this image of betrayal of a spouse to hammer home how serious our idol worship is. And finally, God as our husband reveals to us how God's heart is grieved when we stray after idols and into sin. We often like to think God is like a big insurance company that we lie about when we make an acclaim. Sort of exaggerate what was lost or stolen or whatever. And our rationale goes something like this. The insurance company is so big they can afford it. They don't really care and we're not doing anyone any harm. Certainly not the person that I'm handing my false claim form to across the counter. Likewise, we think about that as God. Well, our sin is so small and God is so big, he'll find it so easy to forgive us, it doesn't really matter. My goodness me, it does. Remember back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 6? The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And this image is God as our husband and us as unfaithful wives makes that alive to us, it hammers at home. And in all this, Christ, well, he's our bridegroom. And we haven't time today, but in the gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom and we are his bride. Christ is our husband. In Ephesians 5, we, the church, are referred to as the bride of Christ. And through the cross, by his blood shed for us, Jesus makes his bride beautiful. So, as I draw to a close this morning, let us earnestly repent of the idols in our lives and our hearts that are inclined to evil. Let us repent of the way that we minimize and justify and rationalize our sin before a father heart that grieves. Let us rejoice that Christ our bridegroom has come to give us new hearts, hearts after him. And praise God when we ask Christ into our life. When we ask him to be Lord, we are born again and we are given new hearts. Our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. And even though we have this pull towards idols, Christ has given us a new heart to set us free. And as we look to him, we have the power to smash idols in our lives and have Christ, our true husband, as the only love of our lives. So let us look to him, Christ, our bridegroom, our husband, who renews and cleanses. Let us be faithful to him who is most faithful to us, our living God. Let's pray.